Welcome back to the Comics Course. This is an offering of Miskatonic University's remote education program from the Literature Department, Graphical Literature and Society and History. I am your professor, Hamby. As always, my TA, Rowan, is here. Say hello, Rowan. Hello. Um, I appreciate everybody getting their papers in on time. I was out of toilet paper, and they were useful. Um, especially the people that went really cheap with the low f fiber stuff. It was nice and soft. I appreciate that. Um, I am drinking cinnamon whiskey today with metal ice cubes. And I had planned for a no feckin' idgits midweek course session um, because I was not angry at anybody. And then suddenly a couple days ago, the internet provided me reason to be angry with idgits again. So, my intention today had been to talk about some comics, some graphical literature, really, related to uh, Hispanic Heritage Month, which runs mid-month to mid-month, which is kind of odd to me, but I wanted to get this in here before the end. Uh, I, I think Hispanic voices and Latino voices, Latinx voices, are really important in graphic literature. And... <sighs> You know, somebody just had to piss me off. Now, I know people think that my heart is nothing but this mass of black, toxic grave worms. And that's not true. I got dewormed a while back. So, I mean, I wanted to show a happy side, but people had to piss me off. So I want to get this out of the way. So, I'm out with an announcement from DC. And we mentioned this a while back because there was a quote-unquote leak from a occasional artist who, uh, named Ethan Scrivener or Scravener or Scraggleass. I don't know, something like that. Um, I don't know. <laughs> and, you know, he had gotten the news in advance that they were going to try out making Jonathan Kent as bisexual. And DC, in fact, came out with that this week, that they are going to do that. And, you know, people have flipped their minds. Uh, this Ethan Asshat guy, whatever his name is, has a video on YouTube where, you know, at the very front of the video, he uses this this technique where he says something that sounds really reasonable, and so you set yourself up to agree with him, but if you stop and think, it's not reasonable. And what he says is, and I'm paraphrasing, that he is against uh, the, the these social justice warriors using diversity to push propaganda. And people would agree with that. Except if you stop and think to yourself, what is propaganda? Well, propaganda is a promotion of a political view. Comic book writing is not a political view. It's individual artistic statements. So, uh, now, yeah, that's slightly confusing. Now, I, I'm not saying that you can't have propaganda in comics, but I don't think Jonathan Kent being gay is propaganda. Uh, unless you're saying that it is political rhetoric, which I think is a stretch, to say that Superman, an icon of American values, can be LGBT. Now, if I think that's a social statement, not an inherently political statement, unless you're somehow of the camp that those people should have less legal rights. And maybe he does feel that way. Uh, in which case, I strongly disagree with him. And there were all kinds of things that came out. Dean Kane. uh got slammed, he went on Fox News and said, Superman coming out isn't brave or bold. Um, I, I did not watch his interview on Fox. I refuse to give Fox any viewership numbers of any kind whatsoever. 
I do want to read some quotes that were reprinted uh, in The Hollywood Reporter. Quote, Brave would be having him fighting for the rights of gay people in Iran, where they'll throw you off a building for the offense of being gay. End quote. He con continuing, he said, they're talking about having him fight climate change and the deportation of refugees, and he's dating a hacktivist, whatever a hacktivist is. Why don't they have him fight the injustice created by refugees whose deportation he's protesting? Uh, so, you know, th there are things to deconstruct here. You know, why didn't he fight for the rights of gay people in Iran? That's a valid statement. Of course, what he's doing is hiding the fact that there's essentially an anti-Middle Eastern sentiment here that he's progressing while hiding it under the veneer of a pro-LGBT sentiment. Mm -hmm. um, and th this is a well-known sort of disinformation. Uh, in fact, this is essentially a propaganda technique. <laughs> <laughs> Because it is espousing for a political viewpoint, an anti-Iranian one. Um, not that the Iranians are... A, well, actually, there are people I love. I've known wonderful Iranian people in my life. I'm not a big fan of the Iranian government. That's a whole separate issue. But there's a difference between government and people. Oh, yes, absolutely. And, you know, so he's dismissing climate change. I think that's important. And then he starts going into these refugees things and basically saying, why, why would he be you know, fighting for the rights of refugees. Why not going after the crimes the refugees have done? What does this have to do with him being bisexual? Well, it, it, it's a series of things. One, saying where the focus should be. And two, then trying to distract people. Now, an argument of where a focus should be is a legitimate point of debate, but it can be used as a legitimate tool to also distract people from a legitimate point. Um, so there's a question of, should a future Superman be bisexual? That, that, that is a legitimate question we can discuss. I already have a strong feeling about it, but we can have it as a point of discussion. But then you distract from that by bringing up other legitimate points. Why doesn't Superman, you know, go fight Iran? Well, uh, honestly, the truth is that DC Comics has usually resisted that kind of approach to the character's power because it is seen as imperialistic and the U.S. imposing its views on other countries because America has always been very closely associated with Superman. I mean, his costume, for goodness sake, is red, white, and blue, mm -hmm. you know? And, I mean, so there, there are obvious answers. And, and these aren't obscure. These have even been talked about in the comics. And there have been, you know, like in Superman year one, he goes to other countries and deposes one ruled by a dictator and there are horrible consequences from it, and he has to learn that he can't, with a heavy hand, dictate societies. So this is something that comic writers have thought about and dealt with, um, and Dean Cain is just injecting himself into a conversation, I imagine, to make himself seem relevant. Um, and, and he says whatever a hacktivist is. I'm sorry, if you don't know what a hacktivist is, we have this thing called internet search engines. You can check. And I don't think the term is terribly obscure anymore. So, I, 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 and of course, a lot of people are freaking out about this saying, and I've seen this, oh, Lois Lane's going to be unhappy now, her husband's gay. Well, first of all, they're saying bisexual, not gay. And um, I hate to break it to people because I've seen a lot of this in the last couple of days too, but just because you're married to one gender, even monogamous with them, doesn't mean you're not bisexual. Mm -hmm. Just in the same way as a heterosexual person who's not actively having sexual relations, they're celibate, 
isn't necessarily, you know, asexual. That's how it works. Who you're sexually attracted to, not who you're actually having sex with. It's very simple, people. Get with the program. Mm -hmm. um, and second of all, it's not Clark Kent, Lois Lane's husband. It's Lois Lane's son. Which makes this really creepy. Right. Spin, if you're going to spend the time to write tweets about things, spend the 15 seconds it takes to skim the article you're so angry about. Really, people, come on. Mm -hmm. um, now, what I do find very interesting about this, and I touched on this the last time this topic came up, is that Action Comics number one is coming up for expiration, and what they're doing is they're having two supermen. And they may at some point, over the course of time between now and the expiration of Action Comics 1, look at making Jonathan Kent the more prominent Superman. Now, is this going to work? No. I mean, if they were sure this was going to work, they would just attempt to do it right now. Mm -hmm. They would have a plan in place and transition them. They are testing the waters. Because they would like to have a character whose copyright on a version of him is not expiring. You know, in less than a decade. Mm -hmm. So... But not that it's, you know, all gone at once. I mean, frankly, Superman, uh, a lot of iconic Superman was not included in the early action comics issues. But it will get the ball rolling. Because you said not even Krypton was introduced. No, he came from another planet, but there was no name of Krypton. There was no Jor-El. Um, there was, oh God, I mean, we, we'd he have a hard time going down yet. the list. Right, you jumped. So it's a very different Superman. But would they like to have a Jonathan Kent who was only introduced in the last generation and whose copyright will be secure for a very, very long time to come? Absolutely. Would they like that to be the iconic Superman people know right now? Yes. And let's think about this. Warner Brothers knows the value of these properties. DC Comics is not run by Warner Publishing. It is worn, run by Warner's TV and movie division. These people think big. They think about what's popular and known. And they think there is a reasonable chance that the world public is ready for a bisexual Superman. I think that's kind of awesome. Me too. I think that's amazing. And, you know, I don't want comics that push political propaganda. But the fact is, we do have comics that push social agendas. We always have. We've always had blatant ones as well as, you know, subtle ones. And that is the result of literature. That literature does that. People push agendas in literature. And when it's also well-written and a great story, it can be very successful. And very often when it's nothing but a vehicle for that social viewpoint that wants to be pushed, it's crap. And people who mindlessly love that social agenda may love it anyway. And I'm probably going to find it to be crap personally. And in fact, we have some examples of that to talk about today. But saying that you don't want these because they push an agenda is ridiculous. When all you approve of is publishing is white, cis, straight males as characters in books, you're pushing a social agenda too. Mm -hmm. And don't say otherwise. You literally can't consume anything without there being some sort of agenda. Even if it's implicit. Now, I don't want diversity... Because I'm pushing an agenda. I am pushing diversity because I want diverse stories. Mm -hmm. And it's that simple to me. Okay. So, let, let's jump in. I've selected four graphic literature works today. 
uh, in celebration of Hispanic Heritage Month. And the first one is one that I was disappointed by. It is from DC, Unearthed, a Jessica Cruz story by Lilium Rivera. Uh, I believe she's of Mexican heritage. And Unearthed is part of DC's recent project of young adult stories and graphic novels. Uh, overall, I've liked these. You know, they've been a mixed bag. They're definitely not oriented towards me. They're oriented towards introducing younger readers to characters, often new interpretations of these characters with new origin stories. Um, sorry, we're having a plane fly overhead. We've had a couple of new freshmen go missing, and I think they're hoping to find them in the swamps out west. <laughs> uh, yeah, good luck with that. Mm -hmm. um, and this Oracle one I thought was good. Um, I really liked Green Lantern Legacy, which introduced a whole new teen Green Lantern uh, of Vietnamese descent. Uh, and I was really looking forward to this because I really liked the Jessica Cruz story. I liked this, you know, her mental health issues that she has to struggle with. Um, I found the writing of her to be very compelling. I, I even thought she was a bright spot in Justice League Odyssey, which overall was a very mixed bag. But I was interested to see what they're going to do with her. And the art, I think, is pretty solid. And I was kind of interested to find out what Unearthed meant. When you initially grab the cover, you see Jessica Cruz's face. And obviously, she's kind of a teen version of Jessica Cruz. But, you know, I expect that after the Oracle and, you know, Catwoman books and all that. And then you see this structure behind her with these carvings that are very reminiscent of an Aztec or Mayan calendar stone. In fact, I have one of those around here somewhere. Um, except then additional parts added on to look like a Green Sorry. Lantern sigil. Don't attack the mic again. You know what happened last time. Nothing good, let me remind you. Okay. I'm still paying hospital bills. God. Right. So... We jump into this and we get a teenage Jessica Cruz in Coast City, which is where Hall Jordan was from. Um, there is an Aztec displayed in a museum, and it turns out she has a, a uh, sort of internship at the museum. And her own heritage connected to the Aztec comes up through these dreams as gods present themselves to her. She meets a teenage John Stewart, who's a black boy she makes friends with. It turns out her family are undocumented immigrants, and they're afraid of that. Um, it's all handled pretty... Oh, God, the hounds again. Hold on, folks. I think they just found one of the freshmen in a way that they didn't want. Okay, we're back. Sorry about that, folks. Well, that kid's never playing piano again. Or, you know, enjoying his life as a male. Um, anyway, you know, medical issues of our freshmen who, you know, walk across the quad without care aside. Um, there are signs... There are signs, and, and they're clearly posted, and the bell rings, but they don't pay attention. So, Jessica Cruz, it does not say Green Lantern, and, but there's a Green Lantern sign on the cover, right? Mm -hmm. Although kind of hidden. Mm -hmm. And have you ever listened to a song you liked, and they're heading towards the chorus, and it's maybe the first time you've heard the song, but you're digging it, and they start with clearly the pre-chorus. But then it just keeps going and going. And then maybe another pre-chorus starts. And it just pulls you completely out of the song as you're just kind of left hanging there. Like, 
when are we going to get to the part I can sing along with? You know, where, where's my part where I can really kind of groove and pump mm -hmm. my fist and dance to it? Mm -hmm. and, and that's what this whole book feels like. Oh, no. Um, because there's no Green Lantern. She never becomes Green Lantern. There is never anything Green Lantern-like. She never becomes a superhero. Um, I, I found myself hitting a point where I was just skimming it. Now, I, I'm not qualified to say this is a bad book. I mean, yes, it's heavy-handed, especially with how it handles the immigrant situation. Um, I like bringing in the Aztec mythology. That's really cool. I really like that. I would have been fine with some Green Lantern angle that involved magic from the Aztec gods instead of, you know, Owens and Green Lantern Corps and stuff. But that doesn't happen either. Um, it, it's using the name... It's It almost feels like they said, we want something with a Latina character and we want a YA graphic novel. And they said, use Jessica Cruz. And so the writer did... And just ignored that there was a Green Lantern aspect. Now, Green does highlight in the book, which kind of keeps teasing you. There's a point where Jessica Cruz meets a jade goddess and she's casting Green. And you're like, oh, there's going to be like a jade goddess Green Lantern thing. Mm -hmm. And it doesn't happen. Then why are they highlighting everything in Green? I know. And then there's this ring motif. And it, it's all... It feels... Like, either they're mocking the audience, or they think they're more clever than they are, or they're clueless. I don't know. Either way, it's bad. This Now, I'm not a big YA reader, so I'm not the ideal audience for this anyway. Um, I do love comic books, and she does later meet other gods, like a fire god and things like that. Um... But my primary inability to determine whether or not it's good at all is they kept making me think that this was going to turn into a Green Lantern story, and it never did, which is a real problem. And I think even more casual readers who don't really know the history may have been expecting that. I mean, because if... Okay, so he, I, I have to tell people at DC Comics this. Maybe they're old and don't know this. Older than me. But kids have this thing called the internet. Mm -hmm. And when you pick up the book and it says DC and it's graphic novel and it says Jessica Cruz, a lot of them have these things called phones. And they can open a web browser on it and Google Jessica Cruz or Go Go Duck or whatever search engine they want to use. And they're going to see Green Lantern. And so if they then decide to buy that book, they're maybe expecting Jessica Cruz to be a goddamn Green Lantern. Because it's almost like that's you know, all the stuff that's going to come up. Right. It is literally the only thing that's going to come up. Because they probably haven't really got into the search engines yet that she's a Yellow Lantern. I don't expect that to last super long. <laughs> and she even at some point gets a green ring. It'd be like doing a Hall Jordan story and he's never becomes Green Lantern. Right. Which is the only use of his character that ever existed. You know, I, I like the idea of moving the Jessica Cruz mythology as a character beyond Jessica Cruz Green Lantern uh, of, of the Green Lantern Corps, but this wasn't a superhero book. You know, that's the other thing. The other books they've done in this line, Oracle, she doesn't have superpowers, but 
she's a superhero. Catwoman, maybe not superpowers, but a superhero. Um, and so forth. I mean, when they advertised a superhero, they delivered one. Mm-hmm. Here they didn't. They wanted to make a YA and they wanted it to sell, so they just put an iconic name on it. Although it's not a super popular name. They just wanted a Latina name, I think. I, I just... I, I, I don't like it. So, I mean, I'm glad they're recognizing Hispanic characters. I mean, there are a number of Hispanic characters in books. It's by a Hispanic writer. You know, that's nice. You know, just to throw out other Hispanic major characters. You know, Jamie Race, the Blue Beetle that a lot of people know from the 2000s who took over the name after Ted Kord uh, died. Uh, Selena Kyle, a lot of people don't know Catwoman, is half Cuban. Uh, a lot of people know, don't know that Kyle Rayner, the Green Lantern created by Ron Mars, one of my favorite Green Lanterns, along with Jessica Cruz, is half Mexican. I did not know that. Yes. Uh, Renee Montoya, a character that has not been used anywhere near as much as she should, um, who's the current incarnation of The Question, is Hispanic. Uh, Maria Mendoza, who's the new Wonder Woman and of Peruvian origin. Over at Marvel, uh, Roberto Reyes has been very popular as the ghost rider driving a muscle car. Uh, we're going to talk about uh, work with uh, America Chavez here in a little bit, sometimes known as Miss America. Of course, Miles Morales, uh, Spider-Man is Latino. Miguel O'Hara, Spider-Man of 2099, is of Hispanic and Irish origin. And, you know, characters like uh, Roberto da Costa, the Brazilian sunspot. You know, so there are major characters in both companies uh, that they could have used and I just, and made them heroes while rebooting them. Although in this case, it would have had to have been a DC one. Um, But I think a Renee Montoya, a lesbian Latina that maybe is like an investigative blogger recast could be really interesting and fit really well in this world they established with Oracle. I think it'd be awesome. That'd be really cool. I think they missed a huge opportunity here and went the wrong path. So, okay, a a few things I want to toss out. That was the first of the four works I'm going to cover. I'm going to cover three more. I'm not just doing works about Latino characters here. I also am trying to do things by Latino creators. So, for example, I skipped Concrete Park, which has some great representations of Latinos in a science fiction setting. It's unfortunately incomplete. Um, But if memory serves, the creators were more African-American than Latino. So I kind of removed it from this list. Uh, Although there is certainly a lot of crossover in those communities, especially where their neighborhoods really have been pushed up in the later 20th century Mm -hmm. and their populations... Uh, where in, you know, in many places in the middle 20th century, you know, you kind of had little Havana, little Mexico, you know, Harlem, you know, these neighborhoods were very ethnically isolated. uh, And that's broken down over time. And a lot of places where these neighborhoods uh, jutted each other, they had blurred, which is, I mean, why we have a term like Blattino, Mm -hmm. because black and Latino neighborhoods really intermixed. Uh, so, but the next work I want to talk about is Day Tripper. This is by Fabio Moon and Gabriel Ba. These are twin brothers. And they've done a number of works. The specific edition I'm looking at has an introduction by Craig Thompson uh, and was published by Vertigo some years ago. These brothers are Brazilian. And I love that if you read the introduction to this deluxe edition, the introduction 
is done as a combination of art and text itself. Oh, I love that. And it's a wonderful style. The... Uh, I mean, what do I say about Day Tripper? This is not a superhero comic book. We'll put that out front. This is not a light, entertaining read. I read it originally many years ago. I reread it recently for the course. And I had to read it in sections because there were times it was just so depressing. This is not a lighthearted read. This is the story of a man who lives in his father's shadow. His father is a great novelist. He wants to be a novelist. He's writing obituaries for a newspaper. And... And the, we see him standing at a bar with blood everywhere. Then we go to chapter 1, 32. And we find out that 32 means his age. And the chapter progresses and we see parts of his life and what's happening in it. And it goes on a, for a pretty good length. And then he goes to a bar to avoid seeing his father accepting an award. An award on his birthday, by the way. His father has forgotten his birthday and invited him to see an award that the father is getting. Oh, come on. I mean, ju just to reinforce the angst he feels about he's not successful like his father is as a novelist and living in his father's shadow. And then while at the bar, a kid comes in, robbery goes badly, and he dies. Oh, that's... And then we jump to chapter two. And we rewind 11 years earlier. Oh. And each chapter is a new way that he dies at a new point in his life. All these branching paths his life could have taken if he had died at a different time, in a different situation. Oh. Yeah. And it's a powerful rumination on not only how can life branch out for you. You know, you can get married to one woman in one scenario... You can never meet her in another. You can have a child. You can This can happen. That can happen. You may become a famous novelist. You may not. Um, it's not only a rumination on the branching randomness of life, but it is an in-depth pondering on how death is a part of life, on how your life inevitably leads to death, and how it has to be a part of it. And it, it is filled with uh, subtle elements of Brazilian culture. It has a gusto for life and a rumination about the pain of life that is both humanistic and I think speaks to all of humanity, but also is distinctly Brazilian in some ways. And also uh, aspects of it distinct to them, the writers. An artist. So powerful work, Day Tripper by Fabio Moon and Gabriel Ba. Highly recommended. The next one is Love and Rockets. Now, there have been a bunch of anthologies of Love and Rockets over the years. Um, I, I'm not a huge fan of Love and Rockets, I have to say. It, it was originally self-published, and then the creators, the... Um, Hernandez Brothers managed to get it published by Fantagraphics. It has a, it's kind of slice of life 
among these 20-somethings in a science fiction setting as cast shifts over time. Uh, it's kind of based around this Central American village, uh, a fictional one that's called Palomar. There's a lot of magical realism elements to it, which is a very Latin American thing. Gabriel Garcia Marquez was well known for his magical realism in books like Love in the Time of Cholera. And you see aspects of that here. But I just never got into it. The pacing, the page-long stories, the it, it just the text-heavy dialogue with the lack of purpose at times. And then other times, I, I like the art when it's, you know, very much images telling a story. But I don't know, the whole, the whole slice of life and the cast of characters never really grabbed me. Now, it's been published off and on for, what, I mean, close to 40 years now? And it has absolute adherents who love it. Maybe if I read it long enough, I would really get into it. I don't know. But I, I never really got into it. And we haven't been talking about the art and everything of these. Uh, but what do you think of the art? It's black and white, simple art. It's nice. It's nice, yeah. I, I have no complaints about the art. I've just... And I, I'm not saying the story is bad. Mm -hmm. I've just never gotten into it. Mm -hmm. The final one I want to talk about... Oh, that's a creepy-ass cover. It is. It is Tony Sandoval's Water Snakes. Now, Tony Sandoval has done a number of works. Doom Boy, A Thousand Storms. Uh, I had to pick only one of them, and I love them all. I picked Water Snakes. Uh, Tony Sandoval is, I believe, Mexican. Uh, I think he lives in Paris now, though. And he does these self-contained works. I can... S you will find a lot of different opinions about Tony Sandoval's work. I consider him a fairy tale writer. And this story, in the opening scene, you see this man figure walking out of the surf, bleeding... And his hair starts turning into tentacles. And then you sort of see a storm in his eyes. And he seems to drown. And then these fish are moving. And then this girl jumps up out of the water. Who runs into another girl. And the blonde girl that she runs into calls her a water snake. The girl that's coming out of the water. And the girl coming out of the water is wearing a little bikini for swimming. She kind of hyper-focuses on the blonde girl's mouth. They end up going to see this den of foxes together and rolling around in the grass. Obviously, the dark-haired girl's kind of fixated on the blonde one. They, the blonde one teases her. It's very clear that there's a kind of sexual attraction. And as the story goes on... The dark-haired girl ends up having these weird dreams where she walks down into the water. She's surrounded by fish. There are weird cryptic things made by... Statements made by characters we don't see. The blonde-haired girl talks about how when she's sleeping, her teeth leave her mouth and, mouth and fly around the world. They wear fox masks. They go cause chaos. And everything seems weird, but sort of just a little weird. Until they go to the blonde girl's house and the dark-haired girl meets her brother who's weirded out and the dark-haired girl basically goes to kiss the blonde-haired girl and then the blonde-haired girl vomits out an octopus. 
The black-haired girl runs away. Later, the boy brings her bike to her and says, Hey, you're lucky you can see her. I can only hear her. What do you mean? Well, she's been dead for years. Uh... And when you think that's a it's a ghost story, then more twists come. And it's a fairy tale. It is a modern fairy tale. It is... If you like Neil Gaiman, I think you would like this. This is all made so much worse by the disturbing art. And the art is both beautiful and disturbing. I completely agree. So, I don't think this story actually says anything about Hispanic culture. I don't think this art says anything about the Hispanic experience. I think this art says something about the beautiful, fucked-up mind of Tony Sandoval. And that's great. It's great that we have Hispanic artists who have a personal vision that they can put out there. So, those are the works I really wanted to show you. Tony Sandoval's... Um, that image water snakes. Of, the image of the octopus leaving her mouth will never leave me alone. That is fair. Oh. Riviera's uh, Unearthed, a Jessica Cruz story. The Hernandez Brothers, Love and Rockets, which I recommend everybody at least give a chance to. It is one of those seminal works. I recommend reading the first volume of it just so you know what it is because it is a landmark in graphic literature. And what was the other one? Day Tripper. Gabriel Moon and Ba, uh, Gabriel Ba and Fabio Moon, Stay Tripper. Sorry, I mixed up names there a second. And also, I'll kind of, I, I have not read it myself, but I know of this. I, I want to give, you know, a quick shout out to Hector Cantu and Carlos Castanelos's uh, Baldo books. Uh, it is the first Hispanic nationally syndicated comic book strip. I'm not a huge fan of comic book strips. In newspapers, it's not a format I tend to care for generally. But they've done several collected versions, including The Lower the Ride, The Cooler You Are, Night of the Bilingual Telemarketers. Uh, feel free to check those out. I do think that's interesting landmark as well. So we are at the 34-minute mark, and I have to trap some rats for dinner soon. Ew. I'm just joking. I don't do that. They bring me my meals from the commissary. Sure. Um... It would explain your behavior. Oy vey. This is the respect I get from my TAs, folks. Really. Anyway, we'll be back a few more days from now to continue to talk about Black Panther. And soon we'll be able to actually, now that we're past Jack Kirby's run, talk about some of relevance to society and history. <laughs> which is fun, I think. All right. We're out, folks. Bye. <laughs>